Thank you, guys. I got it. Bye. We were friends for a hot second until he realized his parents were staying on the stage. <laughs> he and I are no longer friends, evidently. Hey, I got a cool note. We got a gift uh, delivered to the office this week. Uh, it says, Dear Generations family, wow, thank you so much for all your help with our Trunk or Treat event. The photos were amazing, and having all those Jeeps made the event so much more fun. We really appreciate all your help. Sincerely, Los Al Recreation. Just so you know, uh, the Los Al City Park and Recs, as they, when they begin to plan events, they reach out to us. And they say, hey, we're going to do this. How can you guys be involved? How do you want to be involved? And uh, we've been able to, uh, Yvette and myself, we've been able to be a part of the planning for Winter Wonderland that Pastor Matt was talking to you about. And so on the front end of things, we've been able to contribute, to help shape, to take on places that feel like they fit our church. And even if you see the graphic that was put up earlier, man, real prominently is always our church. When they do their mailers, always our church is talked about. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, I appreciate all that you do. Right here in the corner, they start with us and work their way out. And don't tell Bayless this, but I always look and see if our, our ad is bigger than Cottonwoods. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. All right. So... I'm teasing, not really, but it just came out my mouth. Hey, so as we wrap up this series called King of Righteousness, King of Peace, and I know, watch, because he's, now he's going to tell me we can't go to breakfast this week. All right. So as we wrap up this series, um, what happens is we've been, we've been working our way through this book written roughly 2,000 years ago to a church that was primarily Jewish converts to following Jesus. So they had been born and, and or were ethnically Jew, Jewish or they converted to Judaism. And so they were this Jewish community following Judaism, had come to believe in Jesus, that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the promises of God and that he was the Messiah long awaited by the Jewish community. And so they began to follow him and give their lives to him. And now one of the apostolic writers in the, in the first century writes a letter to this church and he works through a very Jewish letter, if you will. But his point to this Jewish church is that being Jewish or being culturally Jewish is not enough to be faithful to God. And so as we read it, we often substitute the word Christian. And so to be culturally Christian, which is a thing in America, which is a thing in our culture, right? If we're born here and we're not a Buddhist or an atheist, we tend to call ourselves Christians, that might mean we celebrate Christmas and Easter, but it may not go any further than that. And the author of Hebrews is writing to a religious community, calling them to be more than culturally religious. And so he, of course, works through a lot of the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and sacrifices. He works through how all of this was pointing to Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled all of it. And as he does so, he calls them to living a life that aligns with aligns with a life of following Jesus. And I often use the example or kind of make the joke that if I, was a, if I said I was a vegan, which I am not, if I said I was a vegan and then you saw me at In-N-Out, you would have questions, right? Right? If I told you, well, I'm only really a vegan for breakfast, right, that probably means I don't like eggs, right? I mean, like, that's kind of, that's really not being a vegan. And what, what this book is, is writing in and he's saying, listen, that actually calling yourself a follower of Jesus has implication. It should transform your life. And it transforms your life because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. In fact, it spends most of the time identifying who Jesus is rather than just what Jesus has done. And so in Christ, in Jesus, we find great hope.
And so all of this is coming to this conclusion, this final chapter, where even the, like kind of the subtitles that have been added to Scripture to help you find your way through it, just says something to the effect of final thoughts. And so his final thoughts are going to be about the life of the follower of Jesus. I was thinking through this this, this week as I was getting ready for this message, and yesterday uh, I just got back from the gym, and, and you guys know uh, Pastor Scott and I, we're good friends. We're not just, we just don't, you know, lead in the same church together or serve together. We're really good friends. We go, we work out together. Our wives are friends. We like to watch the fights together in one of our houses. We like to hang out. Now, that doesn't mean Scott and I always see eye to eye, right? Right? Scott's nodding like this. Yeah, that's right. And as soon as Scott figures out that I'm always right, it will go much smoother, right? Yeah. So we don't always see eye to eye, right? We don't always get along, but we love each other. That never is in doubt. Like we always love one another. And so though we may have something we disagree about, we may get to a place where we fundamentally disagree on something, but we're able to work through it because we love each other. That's greater than the thing that we disagree about. Now, if I have those same kind of disagreements with someone I don't know, is it going to be the same? No. Probably not, right? Because I, I don't have that basis. I don't have that fundamental, that, that groundwork of having that love for one another that it takes to get through hard seasons of life. The notes are, if you have our app, the notes are all on the app. If you're a note taker, I want to start kind of with a first, just kind of a first idea. The final thoughts in Hebrews are to take all that we have learned and put them into practice in the most effective way. It isn't a list of moral behaviors, but rather what transformation in Christ truly looks like in, I think I probably should have done some more editing this morning, Maybe. How about we just kind of uh, put a period here and pretend that. Like what transformation in Christ truly looks like. Sorry. What, we're try what it's closing with is this idea of what life in Christ really looks like. Like what does it really look like? It's, it's on the heels of Hebrews 11 that there have been this, this history of faithful, sacrificial people who lived in light of the promises of God, not even seeing those promises come to fruition in their own lifetime, but knowing they would come. And then Hebrews 12 kind of follows that and says, remember Jesus who endured, just like those generations of people. In fact, Jesus endured all the way to the cross and through the resurrection on our behalf. And so it's reminding us that there is this culmination of this life that we live that is lived out in a community, that is lived out before others. And as he winds this down, he's trying to boil it down to this simple putting into practice most effective way. It isn't a list of moral behaviors, but what transformation in Christ truly looks like in us. Thank you. They make me look better all the time. All right. So everybody, thank you for the tech people. All right. What transformation in Christ truly looks like in us. When Jesus truly impacts us, what should it look like? Let's pray and we'll get to scripture. Jesus, we love you. You are the word that became flesh. We know that when we open up the pages of scripture, it's not these words in English that we read, that we, that, that we bow down to. It is you, Jesus. And you speak from those pages and you speak through your spirit in us. And you speak from a throne because you are the king of righteousness and the king of peace. You are Jesus, the God of heaven. You are the one who created all things and by, by you all things exist. And Jesus, we've come to hear from you today not from me.
Jesus, my words do nothing. Your words give us life. So Jesus, would you come? Would you speak? It's like Joey said, can I fade into the background? And may Jesus, may you take center stage. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Hebrews 13, starting in verse 1. It says, let brotherly love continue. So here's his starting point. What does it look like to have Christ transform your lives? What does it look like to live a life that follows Jesus? And it says, let brotherly love continue. Jesus says this in John 13. He says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, here, let me, let me boil all this down to you. Here's a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, you should love one another. And this is how the world will know that you're my disciples. Now, disciple means student, right? That you're a follower, a student of Jesus. They will not know you're a follower of Jesus by your T-shirts, your bumper stickers, or your theological degree. Okay? They will know you're a disciple of Jesus by your love for one another. Your love for one another in the room, your love for one another in the world, your love for one another in, in the, of the lost in the world, of, of those on the other side of the globe that you'll never meet. For those who are disenfranchised, those who do well, for those who are kind, for those who are unkind. They will know you're a follower of Jesus by your love for one another. There's this famous quote, I don't know if, if uh, Greg Laurie originated it, but oftentimes Greg Laurie will say this. He, he, he will talk about that if you were arrested for, the, for being a Christian, he'll ask you the question, is there enough evidence to convict you? Again, wasn't me, Pastor Greg. If you love it, I remembered it. If you don't love it, Pastor Greg said it. I don't know what to do with you, right? <laughs> If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let me ask you this. If the, if the evidence were by your love for one another, like this verse says, and you were arrested under that idea, would you be able to be convicted by your love for one another? If your faith was graded on a scale of how you love others, where would you land? Will others like me? Others uh, not so much like me. Others I get along with? Oh, you mean my next door neighbor, right? I like my neighbors, but it's a good example sometimes. Where would we land if our faith was really, truly measured by this love for one another? How would we fare? How would we do in this kind of setting? Verse 2, it says this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, I, I want you to, I want to take the one word out of there that kind of throws everybody off right? Angels. The word angels in Greek is really a word that can be translated messenger. It can mean a spiritual being. It cannot mean a spiritual being, right? It doesn't have to mean that. And so people see this and they run down the road of thinking, I wonder if I ever attain this spiritual heavenly sent being. And let's not worry about that. Let's worry about the front half of that. It says this, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, so it's in this theme of loving one another. It's, this, it's in this theme of showing love to one another as an outpouring of your faith, your life, your transformation in Christ. And now it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So again, we're pressing into this loving of others. And right now, we're into strangers, those you don't know. 
And it's calling you to be hospitable, not just loving them, but loving them enough to being willing to take them into your home, take them into your life, or something. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Verse 3 says this, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So the imprisoned, those who are in prison. Now, remember when this was written, <clears throat> this was written in the context of Christianity being fundamentally illegal and persecuted. And the reason it was illegal, it was okay to worship Jesus. It was not okay to not worship Caesar. Okay, so you could be polytheistic. You could have many gods. Jesus could be one of them, and you were okay. But Christians say that there, there's only one God, Right? Even, even, you know, as a, as a trinity, obviously, that's another theological concept, but even that, there's still one God, three persons. And so we would say there is one God, his name is Jesus, that is who God is. And to be a Christian in the first century, that was literally persecuted and ultimately could put you to death. So when it says, remember those who are imprisoned, it might mean someone who's committed heinous crimes. It might mean your brother or sister in the faith who's been imprisoned for their faith. And then it talks about, and it says, and those who are mistreated, it talks about the disenfranchised of the culture, right? It talks about those who are not treated well. And I know that, I, I know we're here in Orange County. I know literally if you cross the street, you're in Long Beach, and I know that there is a convergence of political streams that kind of crash into each other right around that 605, right? And so on one side, you have an incredibly liberal area, and on the other side, you have at least fiscal conservatives, right? if not cultural conservatives. And so everybody, when we hear this, we, we hear different things. This doesn't have to be about a political topic. It doesn't have to be about those who got in the country legally or illegally. It doesn't have to be that. What it says is human beings, human beings who, beings who are not treated well, you should care for them. Right? It isn't about policy or politics. It's about human beings being mistreated. That we should have a love for one another. That we should love and be hospitable to the stranger. That we should, we should, be, uh, that we should understand the imprisoned like we're there with them. And I have some insight into what that looks like. And it should cause some compassion for me to love those who are in a situation where I've been. And it should cause us to always care about people being mistreated. Regardless of your political position. You can believe in strong borders and national security. You believe that we should adhere to our law, and you can still believe that people should not be mistreated. They're not in conflict. They're not mutually exclusive, regardless of what either political party would tell you. That we should love people like us and unlike us. That we should love those we know and love those we don't know. That we should love those in our community and we should love those on the other side of the globe whom we'll never see or meet. We should care for justice. You guys know that I've been to Sub-Saharan Africa and I have a heart for Zambia, Zimbabwe, that area, right? When we, when we have done the, the running for clean water, we've collectively raised $50,000, $60,000 over the last couple of years for clean water in Africa. We do it specifically for a country called Zambia just north of South Africa. And I would love to fundraise for clean water for Zimbabwe, but you can't get past Mugabe down there. You can't get past a corrupt dictator. 
right? My heart breaks for them. And I wish we could do something for them. And that's why we're partnering with their neighboring country because it, pardon the pun, but it trickles in, if you will. It flows in to that country. We should care about people on the other side of the planet. And that should not take away our responsibility for loving our neighbor. We should desire that these people will never meet, come to faith, but we should also desire that the people across the street who play their music too loud or do whatever they do, and if you're my neighbor, I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize, it's the Harley, I know. So we should love those folks. We should love the people like us and unlike us. People of different political persuasions. People with different views on gender and sexuality. We should be able to do that. We should be able to love them, regardless of who they are. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let, marriage, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So he goes from loving others to marriage and sexual impurity. Why? Why would he be talking about loving people and then transition so oddly into marriage and adultery and immorality? There's actually a theme he's carrying on, and it's love. If you love your spouse, you will live a certain way inside your marriage. If you love your siblings, you will treat them in a certain way, even when they upset you. And I think marriage and home and family and siblings, right, brothers and sisters, this is the place we're tested because nowhere else does our selfishness creep out so fast, right? Right, for the married folks, like, yeah. For the siblings, you're like, yeah, that makes sense, right? Because in the home, what we see is our selfishness. And see, in all these other cases, love others, well, the opposite is selfishness. Love the stranger, be hospitable to the stranger, selfishness is the opposite. Right, love those who are imprisoned, those who are marginalized, those who are mistreated, the opposite is selfishness. And in marriage and family, and siblings and spouses, the place where we get to see our selfishness the greatest, most oftentimes in our home. For you note takers, sin is about selfishness, and faith is about selflessness. The point of Hebrews, the point Hebrews is making is learning to love God and others so much that your life is not so about self, that you're, and is therefore more like Jesus, that your life is not so much about self and therefore is more like Jesus. Maybe they're too long today, but they seem to be getting cut off in the screen, so I'm sorry, my bad. Verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Notice it's not about being content first, right? Be content with what you have and don't fall in love with money. Notice that, that see, that would be the moralistic. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good things. That would be the moralistic approach. Here's the way I can get a hold of myself. I'm going to be content with what I have, and then I won't love money. And that's not what he's saying. He says, don't love money, and then you will be content with what you have. Because what he's saying, again, is watch what you love. Watch who and what you fall in love with. And the love of money tends to be the love of things, the love of power, the love of prestige, or the love of fun. And all those really boil down to the love of self. There was a season, and I know sometimes it still looks like it, but there was a time 
where it felt like I went out and I had to get the newest, coolest thing. And, and I, I'm still a tech nerd. I still do some of this. But I remember this time where there was nothing that like as soon as I got it, I was happy for a short time and then somebody else or would get a better one, whatever, or Apple would come out with the next version of it, right? And I'd feel like I had nothing again, which they're so good at doing, right? And I found I wasn't content and yet I had things that were even my beyond, beyond my capacity really to use. Being content was, a, was about not loving the next thing. And really what happened was they just began to, when when things become about God and others, the things that are about you seem to fade away a lot faster. It says, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Saying, listen, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be there with you. You always have enough when I am with you. 90% of Americans live beyond their means. 90% of Americans spend more than they make. Nine out of 10 live beyond their capacity to pay for it. Let that just sink in for a minute. This is at least a national epidemic, right? If not a global pandemic in many places in the developed world. We do a class, uh, we'll, be, we'll be doing a new one probably January, in the mid to late January. We do financial peace. And it is, uh, if you ever heard of Dave Ramsey uh, or Financial Peace University, it is just teaching people to live within their means and to actually save and plan to retire and you don't have to have the newest thing. That's why I learned it. Anyhow, so, right? And, and so we do that every year and people, man, it just changes lives. We have people in here that are debt-free, own homes, that are, that I mean, like, and are young, younger than me, and they're just living in a way that will benefit the rest of their life. And it starts with a heart issue, and then it finishes with some wisdom. And so if that's for you, be listening in January, we'll be doing that. Verse 6 says this, So we can confidently say that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way, of their life, and imitate their faith. He's saying, he's, remember, he's writing this with the last two chapters in view. He's writing this as he writes to this church. He's writing this with all of that litany of history of Hebrews 11 that culminates in Hebrews 12 where it says, and consider Jesus. These two verses right here stuck out, took, stood out to me last week in Hebrews 12. Verses 1 and 3 say this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us. Since we're surrounded by such a great history, a cloud of witnesses, folks that have done this before us, since we live in light of those people, and then it says, Consider him, meaning Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So in all of this, he's saying, listen, there are those that have gone before you, those that have lived this life faithfully, those who have been followers of Jesus, you can look back at them. You can look and see how they lived, see what they did. And then you can look to Jesus, you consider him who endured such hostility. 
And you can live like Jesus. For your note takers, here's the next one. Faith's history. Those of faith who stand out from history had two common themes. They had an overwhelming love for God and a genuine love for others. They had an overwhelming love of God, for God, and a genuine love for others. I know just a few weeks ago, two, three, four weeks ago, three weeks ago, I guess it was, was Halloween, October 31st. And little kids running around, jacked up on sugar, in costumes, right, acting crazy. It was also the 500th anniversary of that Wittenberg church moment where Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of a church because of his overwhelming love for God and what he had witnessed as people were extorted by a church. And he could not stand any longer. Of course, his, one of his biographies is called Here I Stand, famous words of his. And he just took a stand for the faith. Out of an overwhelming love for God and an overwhelming love for God's people, he made a stand in history. 500 years later, we're talking about a German monk. Not because he was wealthy, not because he was powerful, not because he's influential, and most of you have not read his books. We're talking about him because he turned history, the history of our faith, moved on him because of his passion for God and his love for others. And that's what Jesus calls us to, to have this overwhelming love for God and this love for others that drives us, that motivates us. And what it is, is counterintuitively, culturally reversed, counterculturally turning that love of ourself into love of God and others. And the brokenness inside us since the fall of humanity, so every human being has suffered here, is that we want to be number one. That's... that's, That's why there's words in psychology and psychotherapy about self-identity and self-value. Because really what we need to do is esteem us. That's that's a broken world. And and I'm, I'm not making sweeping statements about psychology in general. But there's this deep desire for us to be number one. And that results in such deep sadness, deep pain. I buried a family member this week and remembered the brother I buried a couple years ago and the best friend I lost to suicide just a few years ago. And at the top of these two young people, my brother and my best friend, at the top of this was this desire to be valued and to feel like they mattered. And for various reasons, they couldn't find that way. It ends up at the end of their life. And I hear these stories all the time. My heart breaks for these people because our culture has taught us something that's false and unfulfilling. And that the truth is the more we love God, the more we love people, the more satisfying life is. And it does not make it easy. It does not mean our our problems all go away. In fact, I'd say it's just the beginning of them. So do you want to become a Christian? You're like, no, you're not making it sound so good, right? It is, a hard, it is a hard walk. Our faith is a hard walk. But it is a deeply satisfying way to live. My best day in my old life is better than my worst day now. Because there's something different inside. There's someone different inside. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefit those 
who devoted to those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So here's, he's pressing into this Jewish culture. This is a very Jewish few sentences right here. This is something said to a Jewish church that they would understand. It's like speaking, it's like when you hear Christians and, and sometimes they're so like, they're so similar in one church that like got, kind, of, kind of got their own language. If you like Christianese kind of, they say words nobody else understands or says, and they say them in ways that are just odd and weird, right? That's what this is. This is so culturally saturated that it's hard for a non-Jewish 21st century Christian to put yourself in the setting. Here's what it says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that, that's an easy one. Like Jesus is the same then. Jesus was the same at creation. Jesus is the same in eternity. Like Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Jesus doesn't change. Now, culture changes all around us, but Jesus doesn't change. He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good to the heart, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. So he says this, the gospel is the same. Don't stray from the gospel. The gospel is rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Like, we have to stay there, not to be drawn off by these cultural teachings. And every generation has them, and every generation tries to add to them, and oftentimes all they are is a recirculated version of an old failure. Whether it's, it's prosperity doctrine today with some of the famous people on TV, or it's this very moralistic, therapeutic approach to Christianity, like if I do the right things, then I'm going to be really happy, and when I need him, God's like the genie in the lamp, rubbing, and there it is, right? That's where our culture is today. That's not the gospel. He says, listen, Jesus is the same. The gospel is the same. That's what, grace is what you need. Grace is what you need. Don't be satisfied. And in this case, he's talking about sacrificed food, things like this that's very Jewish. Don't be satisfied for the cultural version of Christianity that surrounds you when the biblical version of our faith is so different. Jesus is the same. Jesus hasn't changed. The expectations for us have not changed. The cultural peace we need here, cultural Judaism is irrelevant for us right now, right? The cultural thing today is this. You come in, you belong to a church, you attend, you might give, you might serve, take communion, you've probably been baptized. Don't let that be the sum total of your faith. Don't let that be the thing that qualifies your faith because you can sit in church every Sunday and never be a believer. You can be baptized, make a profession of faith, but if your life does not look like you're following Jesus, he says, don't be satisfied with going through the motions. Don't be satisfied with you can answer the question of, hey, where do you go to church? Well, I go to generations. That's not enough. Don't be satisfied by the cultural watered-down version of what Christianity is only be satisfied by grace. Here's a note for you. It says this. There are far too many people who are members of a church, serve occasionally, give occasionally, and have been baptized into the faith, but live every day like everyone else. Hebrews is calling for a true work of grace in each of us. Hebrews is calling for a true work of grace in each of us. That something should take place inside of us, something that Jesus does, not us. Something that transforms us and begins to turn us and set us on a different trajectory. Something that Jesus does, not something that we do. See, the cultural version of that is just try harder, act different, do this, do that. That's not it. And again, remember what it started with? 
love one another, love the stranger, love the imprisoned, love the marginalized, love your family. Like, notice that that's not an action step, that those are heart issues. Like we often say here, we don't have behavior problems, we have belief problems, we have heart problems. We believe things outside of here are deeply satisfying, and it's not until we run those out and find out they're deeply painful that we return to Jesus, who is deeply satisfying. Verse 11, he says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Again, very, very Jewish. Let me contextualize it for today. Inside the camp, there was this cultural version, this religious version of, of Judaism, right? Like inside the church, there is a religious version or a cultural version, right, of what Christianity looks like. Inside Western American Christianity, there is a version of what Christianity looks like. And if you live in different parts of the country, those versions are different. Because we're in Southern California and some of the dominant churches in here, people believe that Christians believe in these set of things over here. You go over to the East Coast, they think an entirely different set of things about Christians. Having friends that have planted churches in both areas has been very enlightening, right? Oh, they think this. Really? Well, they think this here. And and it's an odd and, and confusing almost thing. But there's this cultural version of Christianity that has no deep connection to Jesus. As what it's saying is the sacrifices were offered inside the camp. The bodies had to be taken outside. Jesus was taken outside. Like sometimes the cultural, religious, the acceptable version of what faith is, isn't it. And you have to go outside of it to figure out how to follow Jesus. That's what they're saying right here. That Jesus came and he entered into human history. And he didn't do it as a king. He didn't do it as someone of high value or income or anything else. He came in truly into a family ridden and stricken with poverty. And then he grew up like a normal human being, being fully God yet fully human, constrained by his flesh. And he endured what you and I endure in this world. And then he did it as a worshiper of God, never falling short like you and I do every day. And then instead of us dying and and paying the penalty for our sins, Jesus then gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus traded himself for us. And then Jesus was nailed to a cross and buried in a tomb. Now, who inside of our, even even knowing that, would ever design that as the way that God would redeem humanity back to himself? Well, God will just come in and flesh and suffer and die. What he's saying is sometimes this cultural cultural version of what we have isn't enough. And so Jesus enters in that and then leads us out. And this passage is calling us through the gospel to follow Jesus out of the norms, out of the comfort zone, out of the religiosity, if you will, to a deep faith in Jesus. He goes on, he says this, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp to bear the reproach he endured. He says, therefore, follow him. Go where Jesus went. Follow as Jesus did, sometimes outside the religious norms. Jesus encountered all kinds of people that we get to read about in the four Gospels in the opening chapter of Acts. And the places that we see Jesus interact with people, he interacts with some incredibly sinful, corrupt, and and horrible people. People that are deeply sinful and broken. He is always incredibly kind and gospel-focused with them. And the people he has the most problem with? The religious. 
The religious who have found it to be their way to live some kind of life of privilege on the back of the faith. Who extort others that they might be pushed up. And he says some incredibly harsh things that if they translated them into our modern day language, you'd be surprised what might make the Bible. Let's just say he drove them out at the end of a whip at one point. So we are called to follow Jesus outside the cultural norms, to be loving of God, loving of others, to do this so sacrificially that we will, that we will be self-evidently followers of Jesus, that people will see us and they'll know we're followers of Jesus just by the way that we live. For those of you that are note-takers, I know we have some problems with the slides this morning. I think the computer is giving us trouble. Here's Isaiah in the Old Testament. It says, the Lord said, because these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, right? There are people that say that they're followers, say that they're lovers of God, but their hearts are far from him. Next slide. I'm just going to read it to you. Outside of religious comfort says, are we willing to follow Jesus even if it takes us outside the norm for Christians today, requiring us to live differently for an eternal purpose? Are we willing to follow Jesus even if it takes outside, outside our comfort zone, outside the norm, outside the place that is easy, outside where we're comfortable, outside in places that even cause us pain and require endurance as we've been reading about in prior chapters? Requiring us to live differently for an eternal purpose or a kingdom purpose. Verse 14 says this, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I want you to, when we hear this, sometimes we jump immediately to this thing that takes place after death. We talk about eternity being out here. When eternity is here, it just goes forever. Like eternity begins now. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It starts now. Jesus would go on and say, I'm the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus would say, I want to redeem these cities. I want to redeem these people. That's why we both have a people value and a city value. Right, that verse that we love in Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, right? Pray for that city. For in the welfare of that city, you'll find you, you as a church, you'll find your welfare. As, the, as you seek the welfare of the city, you'll find your welfare. Like the better the city is, the better you'll have it. You do that through reaching people, participating in the, in the movement of the city, that you get to do that. That's why we love serving the city so much is we deeply believe that the more we participate in this city, the more it becomes the way Jesus would have it to be. We may never arrive, but this isn't our permanent city, if you will. But this is the place where God has placed us. So Jesus came, city to come. As we fix our eyes on a city to come, I want you to hear this. Jesus came to reclaim a world broken by sin, fixing our eyes on a city to come. It's not about fixing our hearts on this world and letting our hearts be too content here but rather seeing this world become what Jesus is redeeming it to be. Back in Hebrews, verse 15, it says that through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have. Do not, re- do not forget that our faith is to be shared and taken to others. Do not neglect to serve, do good, to serve your city, if you will, and take your faith to other people. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch. I couldn't just do this whole passage and not cover the verse, right? 
No? Okay. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that it would be of no advantage to you. I read this verse to you, and I almost, I almost just parked at the end of verse 16. But do you know that this verse has literally kept me awake at night more nights than I can honestly tell you about? There's this line right here that says this. For those, meaning pastors or leaders, will have to give an account. The thought that I will have to stand before Jesus one day and give an account of the churches that I have pastored, this one, others, has kept me awake at nights. And then it says, listen, follow them. There are people that love you, that lead you. Our elders, our pastors, they love you. They lead. They lead most of them for free. Most of them put in countless hours. Never get a dime. And it says, follow them. Let them be able to do their job with, without, with joy, without groaning. Like that we would stand in front of Jesus collectively as a church and be able to present what we did as a church before Jesus and stand there and say, this is what we did with the gospel you gave us. This is what we did with our transformed lives. This is what we did with generations. This is what we did with the city of Los Alamitos, the city of Norwalk, the city of, Hunting, of Huntington Beach where I live, or Hawaiian Gardens, Long Beach. Here's what we did with what you've given us. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You have called us to be a people of faith, a people who love you, a people who follow you, a people who live like you. And sometimes, Jesus, that just means going beyond the boundaries of the cultural faith that we live in. Sometimes the cultural faith that we have, Jesus, is just too easy, not sacrificial, not demanding on us the way that your life was. And so you call us to follow you out into, out of the camp, out into the wilderness, follow, follow you out into the world, out into our cities, out into our neighborhoods, out into our schools, to the high school. We have, we have people that go to this high school, Jesus. And you call us to follow you to those places, to live like you, to love like you, to serve like you, to be like you. You call us to be so loving to our God and so loving to those around us that people would know we're followers of you. You call us to be so different that we are notably different, that we are visibly different, that we are more like you. And then you give us everything necessary to do that. You died for us. You rose from the dead to transform our lives and give us new life. You ascended back to your throne that you could be with us all. You put your spirit in us to lead us, to shape us, to guide us, to teach us, to correct us, to empower us. And then you have given us an eternal promise that we may or may not see in our own lives, but this eternal promise that this world will be made right by you one day. That in the meantime, that we get to serve and love our communities, the cities we're in, the homes we're in, the neighborhood we're in, the workplaces we're in, the schools we're in, that you give us a place to live out following you. Let us take that seriously. Let us take that with great honor, that it is a privilege to serve you and love others like you would love them. Jesus, as we come forward, as the elders come forward right now, and, and they prepare to serve us communion, we remember your body broken. We remember your blood shed. We remember the sacrifice you endured on our behalf. 
And that you call us to sacrifice. That you call us to endure. That you call us to be like you, remembering you. Just in the last chapter, last week, we, we remember you said, none of you have endured even to the shedding of blood. And we haven't. We may endure hardship, but we, we haven't died for anybody else. We haven't even come close. So let us live the way you would call us to. Let us do it with endurance. Let our hearts and our lives be marked with love. Let us look like you.